I, I live in Boston on land belonging to Massachusetts and, and Wampanoag tribes. Um, and I'm a Filipino American of Ilocano and Pangasinan descent on my mother's side. Hello everyone, my name is Emnet, pronoun she, her, hers. And my name is Michaela, pronoun she, her, hers. And the voice you just listened to is Evan Sura Ramsey. Evan is now a graduate student getting his Master's of Business Administration and Master's of Public Policy in the Boston area. And his interest really stems on rethinking the way we approach food and agriculture and trying to reimagine how we grow, distribute, and serve food. Uh, and that's kind of where this interview starts off. We talk, start talking about um, our cultural foods. So as context, Evan is um, first-generation American, but part of the Philippinex diaspora, meaning his family is from the Philippines. Uh, and so we talk about what that means, trying to reconnect with a food that we're not really around, being in this country. What are this, the responsibilities we may hold and put on ourselves to make sure that we're not assimilating necessarily, but we are maintaining that culture that our, our family had, had brought here. So he talks about some delicious Filipinx dishes and um, our, our conversation then segues into how health is also a construct of colonization in this country and how that even though specifically Filipinx people, and he talks about the, the history of Filipinx nurses, Filipinx people um, have contributed so much to the health system, they've also been so um, disadvantaged by it. And we talked about avoiding talking about mental health and how we've navigated that within our, our immigrant families. And we talk generally about how health is really this multidimensional thing and food and physical and mental health, um, as well as housing, how these are all really important to not only to the you know, non-white experience, but also to the diaspora experience. And we also talk a bit about how we navigate those identities because that's also pretty, pretty complex. Yeah, and going off of that theme of complexity, uh, another thing that we discuss is not really having a place where we could call home, where we were born in the U.S., but it, it was never considered really a safe haven for either one of us, but back home, you know, like not growing, not growing up in that country, not being exposed in that environment, it's also not exactly home. So like, where do we fit, you know, within this narrative? And it's, it's difficult to, it's a difficult question to answer, you know, um, and I think a big part of this episode is that a lot of times there aren't a lot of clear answers to the questions that we see that specifically when we talk about the diasporic tradition, when we talk about um, being children of immigrants, when we talk about how our personal history has impacted our relationship to food, to culture, to medicine, it, some parts of these things actively contradict and reject one another, you know? And sometimes that's okay, <laughs> but this is a really interesting episode and I, I hope that people who are listening to this take something from it, you know? I, I hope you enjoy it. We were low, we were high, Jekyll had us to stay by your side. You know I tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I was wrong, you was right, justified, I was playing with So right now, I'm, I'm primarily a graduate student um, studying public policy at the Harper Kennedy School um, and business at, at MIT Sloan. And one thing, what, one area I've gotten a 
involved at the, the Kennedy School is uh, taking some of the courses uh, at the Harvard Project for American Indian Economic Development mm -hmm. uh, with Eric Henson, who actually connected with us, uh, connected us. Um, and, and one thing that that, that experience has, has kind of instructed me on is some of the kind of intersections and parallels between the experience of you know, indigenous peoples um, you know, in North America and, and more broadly throughout the world. Um, as, as a Filipino American, you know, I, for pretty much my entire life and not, and I think similarly for, for my family members, you know, we, we don't identify as, as indigenous people, but I think increasingly as I, as I come closer to that part of my heritage, there's a greater understanding that we are, we are descendants of indigenous peoples of the Philippines that were largely erased by Spanish and American colonizers. Um, and so, so for me, kind of, as, as I, especially as, as a mixed race person, think about that side of my, my heritage, it's complex for me because, you know, for, 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 much, for, for much of my life, you know, feeling very separate, I felt very separated from that part of my culture. Um, and particularly recently, um, feeling like that's something that I, I want to be more part of my life, to be, embrace more again. And actually food has been one of the primary vehicles for me to do that um, through the practice of learning uh, to cook uh, recipes and, and sharing those, those recipes with my friends uh, to tell the stories of, of, of my family and my people. It's interesting um, that you mentioned feeling separated from your traditional culture because Emmett and I both come from the African diaspora. Um, my family's from Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. And so um, both a lot of my family was born there, both my parents were born there. I, however, was born um, in this country and, and stuff, you know, and I was particularly born in a very white state. Um, and so my, it was difficult to um, get connected to a culture that was nowhere around me. Um, yes. where the foods my mom grew up with, she didn't cook because it didn't make sense. Um, we were trying to assimilate into New Hampshire and that wasn't part of it and stuff, you know? And um, yeah. there, there are like a lot of feelings of regret, you know? Um, and I've been trying like you, I, I've been talking with my mom, I've been talking with my family trying to get more um, of the history out of it, you know? Because one of the things I think is the most painful is that if I were to ever have children, if like, I wouldn't be able to tell them where their grandparents came from or where they came from, you yeah. know? And I was wondering if you could um, expand on exactly how the process of food has kind of enabled you to reconnect with your culture, because that's something that I'm also trying to do. You know, um, I never really had a particular taste for spicy foods. And I remember <laughs> when I came like to New Jersey where my cousins were and like they would always give me like rice and butter because I couldn't eat couscous or um, cassava because it was too spicy for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, when I think about kind of, you know, Philippinex food, I, I, I tend to think about my, my grandparents because Growing up, 
my family was 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 in in the U.S. Foreign Service, and so we actually moved from embassy to embassy, and you know, w never really having like a set place to call home. You know, one of the things I associate with the idea of home is visiting my grandparents and and having them having them cook for us, um, and and that's always just been associated with such comfort. Um, uh, and so. I, I think that was always just for me one of the, the most accessible, like the first entry point for me. Like this was something that I knew where personally, you know, whereas so much of that, um, so much of that culture is often having, you know, we often have to like reclaim it. We have to like start from ground zero to like learn about, you know, like, well, here are the indigenous medicine practices or here are the indigenous textiles or the indigenous tattooing or just the indigenous ways of organizing society. Um, those are things that are, are, are much less familiar to me because of how I grew up in, in, um, in Western schools and in a Western society, right? So, so food was this the first entry point. I knew that um, from, from a child. Um, and I think especially given my family, my, um, my grandfather, my grandparents come from, from a, came from an agricultural community in a town called Mangaterem in northern Luzon. And, you know, I, 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 my grandfather was a rice farmer. I think he also grew sugarcane. And so that kind of, that kind of, that is a, a, a food heritage that I, that I have and I kind of bear. Um, and, um, after my my grandmother was a was a nurse for thirty for over thirty years in Chicago, and after they retired, they they went down to Florida for a bit, um, and my my grandfather planted a calamansi orchard. Calamansi are a small citrus fruit. Um, it's a very tart, um, almost similar to a kumquat, um, and it, it it makes this kind of delicious, kind of lemonade like drink that I used to have every summer. Um, and just kind of spending time in that orchard um, was a way for me to connect to, you know, this, this kind of native food from the Philippines that is basically foreign in the United States. And so having that little piece of indigeneity there, I think really introduced me to that. I think especially as my grandparents got older, I wanted to kind of preserve some of their heritage and and get some of their oral history because um, like you said Michaela I want to be able to tell you know my my kids like where did they come from on on the side of the family where did they come from throughout their family and um, and that was a part of the family which I, you know I, I didn't know as much about like who were my grandparents parents who where were they from um, and of course part of that process was also asking them you know, how do you make this dish that I grew up with, right? Like I was, I remember having a phone conversation with my grandmother about, you know, how do I make a panza pion, which is basically a kind of rice vermicelli casserole with, um, you know, shrimp and egg and veggies. And um, you, you can put like pork, pork cracklings on top, things like that. Um, and then making sure like I recorded it down uh, in my in my computer as quickly as possible to make sure I had that history. It's interesting because as Michaela said, I'm also part of the diaspora. My family is from Ethiopia. I'm in Eastern yeah. Africa. And um, 
you know, like you said, a huge part of connecting to heritage and making sure that, you know, that identity is at the forefront of my existence while I'm on this land, um, at least is through food. And like you said, asking my family, like, okay, how do I cook this dish? Um, and if I don't have the ingredients, then, you know, what's the second best? Or how can I make this dish accessible to me? So at least um, that's something I could pass down. And, you know, that part of my cultural identity is not forgotten. Um, and so I, I wanted to know, you know, you mentioned one of the dishes and maybe you could tell us some of your favorite foods that are from the Philippinex culture um, and maybe a little bit of how they're made too. Absolutely. One of the interesting things about Philippine cuisine is how mixed it is. You know, there's Spanish elements, Chinese elements, American elements, in addition to sort of like the more indigenous, um, what was already there. So, you know, on, on one hand, you sort of have some dishes that are very, that where there are versions of it across the islands, across the archipelago. And then on the other hand, you actually have a lot of regionality. Um, so for example, one of the dishes you always hear about is adobo, which is at its core, essentially a, a braised meat dish where, you know, for me, when I make it, I'll, I'll put in dark meat chicken or sometimes, and sometimes pork. Um, and you braise it in soy sauce, cane vinegar, garlic, bay leaf, and black pepper. And adobo is sometimes called the unofficial national dish of the Philippines because it is a version of it throughout the country. In the part of the Philippines where, where my family comes from, um, there are also sort of more indigenous dishes um, that, that are more characteristic of sort of like the, the fresh produce from that region. Uh, one of one of one of my favorites is called peanut bet. It's um, essentially, I think, in some ways, all the all the vegetables you could find, right? Like traditionally, it's green beans, eggplant, bitter melon, orange squash, and okra, you know, among others. And then you can put you know some pork or shrimp in that. Um, and one of the most important. Um, one of the most important flavorings in that is a uh, is a is a is a fish seasoning called bagoon, which has this this deep deep umami flavor. And then the last one I'll, I'll share is, whenever I was sick as a child, my mom would make me a dish called lugal. And what it is, it's essentially a rice porridge, um, uh, seasoned with chicken ginger, garlic, lemon, and fish sauce. Um, and I remember, you know, my childhood memories are always, you know, it, it would help clear up, clear things up, right? Um, it would really help get me through um, the sickness. And, and, and now that, that, is, that is essentially the, the chicken noodle soup of, of my childhood. Some of the conversations that um, Emmett and I have had previously on what on how food intersects with medicine have been really insightful questions for me because I feel like medicine and specifically health um, are things that for me I never really thought of the ways in which the way that I grew up has kind of influenced how I approach health and stuff you know and so I was wondering if if you'd want to um, kind of talk about how 
your personal history has shaped the way that you view medicine and or health in relation to your not only your body but also um emotionally mentally you know i think it's a complicated question i think there's a question about the relationship between filipinos and medicine because i don't know i don't know how many filipinos you know but there's a lot of nurses and there's a long history to, to why that is. Um, you know, in 1898, after the Philippines became an American colony, you know, the, the, the American colonizers set a, a colonial agenda largely around instituting public health in the Philippines, especially based on um, a, a pretty race, racist assumption that the Philippine people were, were unhygienic. And, and one of the results of that um, was actually the United States essentially set up the Philippines education system um, as a way to generate uh, nurses for the United States uh, hospital system. And that's actually how my family came over to the United States. My, my grandmother was educated in, in one of these American nursing schools. Um, and ultimately, after kind of spending a few years away from her family in the United States. Uh, my grandmother worked in the United States as a nurse while her family remained in the Philippines. Um, she was able to get a green card and, and green card status for her entire family. And that's how we wound up um, in Chicago. And so it's, it's interesting where, you know, partly because of that, indigenous med medical practices in, in the Philippines are, are, are largely non-existent. Um, as uh, at least at least at least within my my family and, and on our, our understanding and i think that also kind of reinforced um some kind of machismo attitudes around mental health right like you know i you know i i think when i when i my idea of what sick was you know growing up um was largely based around like how i was feeling physically um regardless of mental distress. And I think that's something that intersected a lot with, you know, both kind of like this machismo culture from the Philippines and as well, just like the, the base hyper-masculinity of, of a kind of American culture, right? Um, but, you know, today I think, you know, as, as I've, as I've, as I've kind of come back to this is it, as I've come back to kind of my Philippine heritage, it, it sort of is in parallel with my own journey toward, towards thinking about, um, okay, breaking down kind of like this kind of masculinity that prevents, that prevents people from, from talking about their, um, their mental or emotional trauma. I think that's been especially important over the past few months as we are in this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we're all going through feelings of loss. We're all going through feelings of, 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 you know, not being well, you know, um, and especially, so, so maybe I've, da I've danced around this a little. My, my grandmother got COVID in April and passed away. Uh, and so from, from that standpoint, you know, dealing with that loss, and especially within this context of like my own Philippine heritage, um, I think it's it's become especially important in the past few months for me to, to think about that 
to deal with that grief and also use uh, use use cooking as a way to remember her because that is you know that's how I can you know have this heritage live on. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I I really appreciate how you said that you know food was a way to connect with those that you've lost um, as well as you know, can also be like ancestral connections as well. And I feel like that's the way that I, I try to use food. Um, it's something that kind of rejects our, our normal eating, our westernized eating. And in that sense, you know, having those food there is, is a form of like resistance and a form of um, connection to those who may have passed and those who also may be living and those who, who have led you to enjoy these foods. Um, I also wanted to touch, expand on what you said about mental health. Um, I, I do know a little bit about the history of um, Filipinx people and nursing. Um, my mom is also a nurse, although for different historical reasons, but yeah. um, at least having people in the healthcare realm, I completely connected with you on the sense of like, all right, um, this like muchismo ad attitude and that like, okay, um, you can get better yourself, A, and also like health is just entirely physical and like the mental health aspect was completely disconnected. I did have a lot of things that like I, I tried to push under the rug um, and I feel like having those open connections like, would have been great. I've had a lot of people in healthcare around me um, trying to tell me that mental health is not really important um, and it's very very different from when I started going to college and there was like all of a sudden these like healthcare resources and they were like mental health is important please take care of yourself and I kind of had to kind of unlearn that um, the idea that mental health was insignificant to my body and my well-being um, yeah. and I've I feel like I've been able to relearn how, or I guess learn how I should be taking care of my mind as much as I'm taking care of my body. Um, and, you know, without one of those parts, I can't take care of my well-being as a whole. I, I think growing up, um, similar to Emnet, it wasn't until college that I really took an in-depth look at um, how I was feeling emotionally. And I think I was kind of, I was really like shocked at how much I have repressed or how much I just didn't know about my well being and stuff, you know? And I think part of that is just because I never knew it existed. So I never talked about it, you know? And so it's like, I was dealing with this in high school, but I didn't have the words to express how I was feeling and stuff, you know, and it was into college where it's really crazy how open people are about talking about mental health because that's such a different way to how my previous, um, how it was previously like for me, you know, and there was a campaign at our college where um, this club printed a bunch of stickers to put on people's laptops and it, it was like, um, it's okay if you feel anxious, it's okay if you feel depressed, it's okay if you feel sad. And I have two of those stickers on my laptop right now, actually, and stuff, you know, and it's such a small phrase, but it's something that's really struck with me because I never, I've never really learned to be okay with um, 
these feelings it's always felt like a like a negative aspect of me like yeah. why can I get better why do I feel like this and stuff you know and quarantine has kind of like intensified that where I've spent a lot more time alone and I've realized that you know how people say like oh you need to take care of yourself but like that's really hard to do and again I kind of want to bring in um, history and the past and present in the future stories that like everyone carries deep inside them you know even for me who is the first um, generation to be born on this land being aware of the violence and the trauma that was inflicted on so many people to create this country and stuff you know being aware of those histories of the pain that people still feel you know it's really heavy and especially um being black in this country too is also yep. really and stuff you know and so it's like I feel like you can't talk about mental health without also talking about your identity you know because I feel like that's an intrinsic part um of your well-being and stuff you know and it wasn't right. until I slowly became more okay with my identity as a black person which or not more okay but more I've accepted more of it which was yeah i mean as i said in the beginning i grew up in a predominantly white space you know and um in new hampshire yes yeah. new hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's crazy but i've become more and more aware of how much that has negatively impacted me you know like how the negative impact of being constantly othered in a space you know um yeah. It's like subconsciously too, like, oh, I need to have straight hair or oh, um, why don't I look like this and stuff, you know? And you don't realize the impact it has on you until like you go to a different space and now you're around people who are like, No, I felt like that too and stuff, you know? And it's kind of crazy untangling all of those feelings and yeah. emotions and stuff, you know. I feel that. And one thing I've been thinking about, especially in the past couple of months, is just the emotional labor of of this, right, is, can be heavy. Um, and you're talking about your hair, and I'm just getting memories to be like, when I was an angsty teenager, like, I was trying to comb my hair out straight, like, all the time, and it never worked, and it, like, made me so, so, like, me, it, it affected my self-worth, because I felt like I wasn't able to conform to this, this white beauty standard, right? Of course, I wouldn't have used those words as a 13-year-old boy because I would have felt uncomfortable with using the word beauty standard, but um, that's what it was. No, um, ever since I was little, actually, um, ever since sixth grade, I've relaxed my hair. And so I have pretty kinky hair. It's um, 4C and it's yep. pretty curly and stuff, you know? Um, but relaxing, it would straight, permanently straighten it and stuff, you know? And so actually it wasn't until um, I graduated from high school that I decided to stop relaxing my hair. And I realized that I didn't even know how to take care of my natural hair. Yeah. You know, it was kind of sad because I've grown up and I've rejected my natural hair for so long that I don't know how to take care of it because I didn't, thought, I didn't think it was attractive. I didn't think it was pretty. You know, and that's a that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> oh, this could be a whole nother episode, honestly. I know. <laughs> we could really get into it, um, but 
yeah I'm also thinking about like my experience like growing up in Boston it's a very very segregated city um and I've also watched the black and brown people who used to live near me slowly be evicted from their homes because of increasing rent um and gentrification in this in this neighborhood specifically um but all over Boston really um, and that's also taken a toll on my mental health and my well-being, seeing folks who look like me and folks who may have similar, you know, ancestral connections as me be evicted or constantly be seen as, like, less worthy on this land. Um, I mean, it really kind of just puts everything in perspective that, you know, just, like I said, existing on this land is seen as violent, um, and existing in in this like white supremacist world is is honestly an attack. It's seen as an attack for others. Um, and yeah, that, that really just like messes with you. It's just like, where do I belong necessarily? This can get really deep, but like, you know, where is home? Like, where do I belong? Um, where can I find comfort when I see folks around me constantly be rejected? Um, and even Michaela, like you said, for their hair, for their skin, um, for their, how much money they have in the case of housing, um, and also, you know, how race intersects with that. So, yeah, I'm wondering also, um, you know, we've talked a lot through this podcast about the meaning of food and how food brings, can bring people comfort, um, and it can help people cope with, you know, traumas and these historical traumas of eviction and colonization and possibly even genocide. Um, and I'm wondering, has food or even the foods you listed before have those ever been aid in giving you comfort um because at least personally i can talk about the foods that i eat that give me comfort um in ethiopian culture there's something called injera which is like a sourdough bread um and you put different types of spices on top and it's kind of a a very spiritual experience because you eat with your hands and so like you with the food it, it you know it brings a whole new meaning of what you're eating um and at least being home now i've tried to i won't say i've been that good at cooking it but i've been <laughs> a little bit um because the the spices in boston at least are readily available when they're not when i'm back at hamilton um and you know yeah. eating those foods just it's kind of like an out-of-body experience like i i try to eat slowly first of all when I eat these foods because it's almost kind of like romantic like me and the food and I don't want to spiritual right like spiritual right and in a way that I feel like I don't really connect with the foods I'm eating at school for example because those are foods that are just meant to like fill you up and just continue to go about your day like those aren't foods that like when you're eating a subway sandwich it's like completely different yeah like a five dollar foot long like you're just eat it and go (laughs) um (laughs) I guess my point is that food, especially with indigenous foods, are so, so deeply spiritual. Um, and they are foods that have helped people heal from the traumas that they've endured. Um, so I'm yeah. wondering, you know, if you ever had those types of emotions while eating cultural foods, um, and you know, what is the significance of being able to eat those while you're here as a dancer? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think as as you know i think about you know this journey into kind of re you know trying to reclaim kind of 
the, the cuisine of our um, of 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 our parents and and where they came came from, you know, I think I think part of it is like this. It's it's a process of decolonization, to your point, right? Um, and and of of making sure that you know the assimilation that we feel as members of the diaspora isn't just a one way street, right? And, and so I'd I'd also love to get like your takes on like it can it feel it can be complicated for us to like think about what it means to be a member of the diaspora to be descendants of indigenous people yet we ourselves have never lived on those lands we ourselves didn't necessarily grow up with with those cultures and you know it gives me comfort to to know to to bear to to carry the weight of some of that um and to have a knowledge of that but at the same time you know one of the questions that's that i've seen raised um i think perhaps most most often um you know, I think especially with, for example, like Latinx or Filipinx folks, you know, one of the questions has been, you know, how indigenous are we just because we have indigenous blood, right? Um, and it, it's one of those questions about like, are, 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 what makes someone indigenous, right? Like, I'm not sure I feel comfortable saying that I'm an indigenous person. I know I'm of indigenous descent, right? Um, and what is our role in the struggle for indigenous rights, right? I, I think, you know, we've spoken about being at Hamilton College um, and, 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 you know, we're all in higher education institutions and, you know, higher education institutions historically have not been welcoming to indigenous people. And we see that echo today in the composition of who is at places like who is at colleges and universities in the United States, who attains, who attains higher education. Um, and, you know, it, it's somewhat ironic. I, I, some, you know, to some extent, do we ha have a responsibility to be the faces of indigenous people at these institutions, even though we ourselves are still learning so much about what that is, right? I mean, this is gonna carry through forward when we go into the workforce you know, when we are at institutions uh, that have power, how do we represent indigeneity in that space? I'm, I'd love to. I'd love to hear how you guys think about that as as members of the diaspora as well. No, um, that actually that's so similar to conversation that me and have had in the beginning of this podcast, where. Um, yeah, being being in higher education, um, <laughs> becoming um, aware specifically for me in the ways that I have been privileged um, in comparison to other folks. One conversation Eminent and I actually had a couple months ago was I sent her a link to this podcast that was talking about um, if reparations are given to what black people would they be given to and stuff you know and then we were talking about how um as black folk like i've my my identity is very complicated because since since i was young i've always thought of myself as a black american but now i'm 
really trying to get into that term. Like, what does it mean to be a Black American? What does it mean mm -hmm. to be a Black African? What does it mean to be a member of a diaspora? Stuff, you know? And um, the conversation that Emna and I had was, do, do we experience the same amount of institutional racism as folks who have been here for generations, who yeah. have been here housing and segregation, slavery, you know? Um, and honestly, we don't. We, we've been here for only one generation and we experience the injustices of what it means to be Black, but we, it's not on the same level as people who've been here for longer and stuff, you know? And so then when you look at higher education where when I came, I felt a sense of achievement because I was like, this is, I'm, I'm a successful Black person, you know, like kind of buying into that um, myth of the recent immigrant that comes to America and yeah. is on their way to becoming successful and stuff, you know, like I bought into that a little bit and stuff, you know, and realizing that, well, how much exactly did I achieve, you know, where, um, yes, I, I've done good things, I've worked hard, but at what cost? Are there people yeah. who, who are in more difficult situations than I grew up? Where are they at this place and stuff, you know? Um, realizing that maybe my story isn't a success story and maybe it's a story that's meant to act as a common bond. Um, you know, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. It is. It is. And I think, I think especially as like children of immigrants, like I, I know I feel so privileged, right? Where a lot of the work, a lot of the, the pain and trauma that came with that process was born by my, my, my mother and her siblings and, and my grandparents. Um, and, and, and it's almost like we're the generation that gets to start reaping the rewards for that sacrifice. Um, and I think, I think I also heard you drawing on um, I, I, I was just reading um, How to Be an Anti-Racist and Ibram, Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi kind of references this, this racist myth of, well, if, if, if immigrants can come to this country and be so successful, why can't Black Americans? And I have actually seen my, my grandparents have such sort of similar anti-Black things because you know, even though they lived and worked alongside Black Americans in Chicago, there is this idea about, oh, well, well, we're, 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 you know, if we can be successful, then anyone can be successful. But that's not always, the, that's not necessarily the case, given the structural barriers that, that, that people face. I mean, there was a story a couple of years ago, um, this school down south that was um, getting a lot of kids accepted into Ivy Leagues. And the, I remember seeing one kid on the Ellen Show and they always filmed um, reaction of the kids getting accepted and stuff. And it was later revealed that and it was predominantly black and brown kids who were yep. um, accepted there. And it was later revealed that the conditions that they were being educated under were awful and it was borderline abuse and stuff, you know? And so it's like the way that the, that people grasped onto this quote unquote success story that, look at these kids who came from such disadvantaged backgrounds, look at where they've come now, 
you know, and it kind of turned the whole thing on its head where it's like, why are we championing these kids who did something that is incredibly difficult? Why aren't we championing the kids? Um, but we're turning away from the kids who um, grew up in the same situations, but they didn't have that same story and stuff, yeah. you know? it's kind of pitting one group against the other and that that immigration thing you were it's it's not even just anti-black it's also you see that in so many other minority communities you see that in um you see that in the asian community you see that in the african community there's that's part of the reason why there's like so much tension between like Africans and African Americans and stuff. You know, um, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. No, I was gonna mention like I've also seen that in my family. And I was gonna mention black on that list of people who can be anti-black because there are black people who can be anti-black. Um, and you know, I've also seen those same comments that you know, Evan, you've mentioned in my family too. Um, yeah. Which is really hard to grapple because I'm like, okay, um, I'm from, obviously I'm from Ethiopian descent. Um, I'm also on a land that was, you know, Native American. And now I'm, I'm also perceived as black in America. The negative connotations except, um, that connect with blackness are oftentimes actively rejected in, I think, African diasporic households, um, especially at least in mine. And I think, you know, there's something interesting and in, like trying to grapple with identities that don't fit with each other. Like I feel like I want to think of my identity as like a puzzle piece that goes like hand in hand with each other. But there's some identities that I have that actively reject each other, I feel like. Like for example, you yeah. know, my Ethiopian identity might be rejecting my blackness, but those are inherently related to each other. So I don't understand how they can also not go together. It's something that is very confusing. And, you know, for the sake of returning, you know, returning it back to health a little bit, um, it's yeah. also impact here. I'm trying to make this Thanks for getting us back on track. <laughs> I'm trying, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be on track. It's, it's fine. Um, but, you know, also that is something that takes a toll on, on your mental health also. Yeah. One of the realities, one of the health realities um, that Filipinos, Filipino Americans face um, is that even though we are so involved in the United States healthcare system, uh, we, we, we face some of, some of the worst health disparities in, in the United States. Uh, we have um, uh, Filipino Americans uh, have some of the highest obesity and chronic disease rates. Um, in the United States, um, though similar to those faced by uh, Black, Hispanic, Native American, and Pacific Islander communities, um, I think we're, I think the obese the overweight rate is something like seventy nine percent, and one of the, you know, to to me one of the places this truck comes back to, um, is 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 colonization. When the Philippines was an American colony, and this is similar for places like Guam and Hawaii, um, you know, the Americans introduced kind of canned packaged commodity foods like spam, canned meats, high cholesterol, high fat, high sugar diets, right? 
and that those are those are colonial legacies that live on today in the health disparities faced by faced by those peoples, right? Um, and we see similar histories in what has happened to the United States um, in terms of you know, what are the what are the food what what are the food access realities for Native American communities, many of whom do not have groceries on their reservations, um, of food deserts in Black and Hispanic communities in major cities, you know, has resulted in higher obesity rates, higher rates of chronic illness like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, um, that, that lead to death. And we also see that echoed in what is happening with COVID-19, right? Native Americans and Black Americans have the highest hospitalization rates in the United States for COVID. Um, and, you know, I, I think for, for my family in particular, like it's painful knowing that, you know, my grandmother served in the United States healthcare system for over 30 years. Um, and you know, in some ways was, was let down by public health failures. One of the realities, one of the health realities um, that Filipinos, Filipino Americans face um, is that even though we are so involved in the United States healthcare system, uh, we, we, we face some of, some of the worst health disparities in, in the United States. Uh, we have um, uh, Filipino Americans uh, have some of the highest obesity and chronic disease rates um, in the United States, um, though similar to those faced by uh, Black, Hispanic, Native American, Pacific Islander communities. Um, I think we're, I think the, the overweight rate is something like 79%. Um, and one of the, you know, to, to me, one of the places this truck comes back to um, is, is, is colonization, because one of the things that happened was when the Philippines was an American colony, and this is similar for places like Guam and Hawaii, um, you know, the Americans introduced kind of canned packaged commodity foods like spam, canned meats, high cholesterol, high fat, high sugar diets, right? And that those are, those are colonial legacies that live on today in the health disparities faced by, faced by those peoples, right? Um, and we see similar histories in what has happened to the United States um, in terms of you know, what are the what are the food what what are the food access realities for Native American communities, many of whom do not have groceries on their reservations, um, of food deserts in Black and Hispanic communities in major cities, um, and that not having access to fresh food, native foods. You know, has resulted in higher obesity rates, higher rates of chronic illness like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, um, that, that lead to death. And we also see that echoed in what is happening with COVID-19, right? Native Americans and Black Americans have the highest hospitalization rates in the United States for COVID. Um, and you know, I, I think for, for my family in particular, like it's painful knowing that, you know, my grandmother served in the United States healthcare system for over 30 years. Um, and 
you know, in some ways was, was let down by public health failures. In, in addition, I think I'll also just say generally, one thing I've, I've heard um, from, from, from Native Americans and other indigenous peoples is that the stories that, that history tells about us, the narratives that we have in our minds about indigenous people tend to be narratives of suffering, um, of, of being victims. But the reality is that you know, indigenous peoples are still here, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's stories of resilience. Um, and I think as members of diaspora, we, we are also representations of that resilience of our peoples and our ancestors. And I think it also means in terms of our relationship with our own cultures, for me, one of the things I interpret is we are culture carriers, right? Like we have a responsibility to not just not just assimilate um, but to preserve what what is ours and in cases where that's been erased I think we can also try to reclaim God, you